0: We are at war. And I'm not talking about the one that you read about in the news every day in the Middle East. This war began a long time ago, right at the very beginning. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, He looked at all that He had made and saw that it was all very good. That was the end of Genesis chapter 2. And then He rested from all of His creative work on the seventh day. Now, we're not sure when in that process that He created the angels. They, they seem to have been present when He, when he formed the earth. See, jo- Job 38, when God was speaking to Job about creation, said this, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? A- a- on what were its basis sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning um, stars and the sons of God are typical Old Testament language for angels. So it seems when God created the heavens and the earth, sometime before, perhaps shortly before, He created the, the angelic host. And I want to suggest that He, he did so well. He created them all good. When he created the earth, which was to be the, the center of his attention, all of the angels sh- shouted for joy. It was all good. But Ezekiel 28 seems, not positive about it myself, but seems to indicate that one of, at least one of the angels developed, well, I'll call it an attitude problem. We do know that by Genesis 3, something was, was not good. An enemy of God appeared. A- at some point, this angelic being rebelled, fell into sin, came to be known by various titles, Satan, the devil, the serpent, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the father of lies, Beelzebub, the prince of demons." He became an avowed enemy of God and God's good creation, which includes us, who bear His image. The first volley of of the war, at least the first one we read about, took place in the Garden of Eden. God had created man and woman on the sixth day before He rested. He, He placed them in the garden, husband and wife, tend it, keep it. Of all of the produce of the garden, they could freely eat, save one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree was forbidden them, and so it was there that this new avowed enemy, Satan, attacked. You know the story. He appeared as a serpent, tempted, deceived Eve, who ate, and then she gave to her husband who was with her. Don't miss that. And he also ate. And now this, this war included human beings as well, combatants, casualties. You, you decide. question is, on whose side? Of course, God knew all of this. He actually, he actually planned from eternity past what they would do. So in Genesis 3, He told Adam and Eve the, the consequences of their rebellion. Man's work intended to give joy would be filled with thorns or difficulties. Women's pain would be multiplied in childbirth, and there would be enmity, uh, warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman, between the serpent and and his minions and and all of humanity. But even in the midst of that cursing, God gave a, a promise of hope that there would be a seed of the woman, a specific seed... Whose heel would be struck by the serpent, but in the process, whose heel would crush the head of the serpent. Most understand this to be the proto evangelium, that is, the first promise of the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of humankind, would one day be born of a woman. He would be put to death on a cross, struck. By the serpent, but having borne the sins of humanity in his body, he would rise again the third day, crushing the head of the serpent. And and so, today, while the outcome of the war has been decisively decided, we are still at war, battles still continue. While the serpent has been mortally wounded, he and his forces still Fight on battles, still rage against us. We must know this, we must not rest as if we are in peacetime. Martin Luther wrote of this conflict in his famous hymn A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft, his power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Glad you ask. Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he... He will win the battle. My estimation, one of the greatest hymns ever written. It speaks of the war, but of its decisive, already decided end. Here's the problem today, especially for those of us living in relative first world ease. Many of us have forgotten there is a war going on. Many of us have laid down the weapons of our warfare. We have forgotten the words of Peter in his first letter. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we're sitting in lazy boys. Easy prey. There are battles to be fought and won. We are not yet living in the fullness of peace. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to his well-known work, The Screwtape Letters, in in which he imagines conversations between Screwtape, a, a demonic leader, and Wormwood, one of his little demon charges, in the introduction to that book, Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's two extremes. One is to disbelieve in their, ex- in their existence. <laughs> That's us. I mean, come on. And we're a lot smarter now. That demon possession stuff in the Bible, we know that now to have been Ill, you know, mental illness. The, the other extreme is, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the demons, are, are, are themselves pleased by both errors both extremes in hell a materialist one who doesn't believe in the supernatural and a magician one who's consumed with it with the same delight somewhere in the middle is the place we need to take our stand and i choose that word stand intentionally because this you see is Paul's encouragement to us as he nears the conclusion of his letter to the ephesians you see up to this point he has taken us to great Heights. I mean, hadn't He? We, we were chosen and loved by Him before the foundation of the world. We've been gloriously saved and rescued from the domain of darkness. We are currently seated with Christ in, in heavenly places. As a result, He's called us to walk a, a life worthy of the calling we've received. And, and that word walk became the theme of the rest of the, of the, rest of the book. And it all sounded really, really really good. I mean, come on, let's go. And Paul says, hold on. You need to understand this is not going to be easy. There are evil, dark, demonic forces which will oppose you. And that brings us to his final thoughts in his book before he closes his letter, Lord willing, next week. The final command to us is to be strong in the Lord and stand. It's time to quit sitting around. It's time to stand and be counted. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following say this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the de- devil. For our Struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. You think he's getting his point across? Having Girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It says it four times in these verses. Stand up. Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand. Verse 13, full armor of God so that you can withstand is literally resist. Having done everything, stand. Verse 14, stand up. Stand firm. This is the central command of these verses. Stand in the midst of inevitable attacks. You don't think they exist. You got a problem. There's no time to sit. No time to rest. That'll come when you die. You are at war. This war has already been referenced a couple of times in this letter. In chapter 2, he said, unbelievers, that is, people who have not yet come to faith in Christ, spiritually dead people, walk according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. In chapter 4, he told believers to control their, their anger, or else they run the risk of giving the devil the devil, an opportunity to trip us up. We are in, at war. In order to fight this war successfully, we have to understand some things. First, our battle is fought in the Lord's strength, not our own. Second, our battle is fought against spiritual enemies, not each other. Third, our battle is fought with spiritual weapons. And fourth, next week, our battle is fought best, on our knees. Now, one of the things that you should know as we get ready to jump into the text is I am not going to do a lot of speculating from these verses. <laughs> you, you can. Others do. You can buy books and, and novels. You can, you can attend conferences. You can listen to sermons on spiritual warfare. There's a book, there, was a, there was a pastor, uh, actually a Puritan pastor in the 1600s who wrote a book on these verses that was 1,400 pages long. That's like War and Peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on on these verses over 700 pages long. No big deal. He preached on Ephesians 2, 4, an entire sermon on the words, but God. I'm not going to do that. Lots of speculation. But in the end, while there may be some truth, it's still speculative imagination and, frankly, sensationalism. I don't want us, listen to me, I do not want anyone to leave here this morning challenging the devil to a duel. I do not want anybody leaving here and charging hell with a squirt gun. I simply want to learn from the text about spiritual warfare. Here's my encouragement. If you don't hear anything else, stand. Quit sitting around. Victory is ours. War is won. The enemy is already defeated. We're just engaged in mop-up operations. We're supposed to be rescuing captives. Yeah, I do want to limit the number of casualties. We do that by recognizing we're in the middle of a war. It must be fought rightly. It must be fought first in the Lord's strength, verses 10 and 11. Finally. Last command in this series of 40 imperatives that I have given you in these last three chapters, I want you to be strong, literally it's in the passive, be strengthened, this is something that's done to you, in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Paul, Paul starts this whole discussion on spiritual warfare reminding us that our strength comes not from within but from without. It comes from the Lord. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing does ask who that may be. Christ Jesus it is He, and He must win the battle. Because you can't. Not by yourself. It is only as we stay connected to Him that we're able to fight. Again, one of the imbalances in the discussion of spiritual warfare is to give people the false sense that they can take on the devil. I want you to know that we can only do that in the Lord's mighty strength. We hear a lot today about our adversary, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And and so Peter does tell us, because of that, he says, resist him. But James goes further. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So a lot of people, they're ready to go out and resist the devil. Let's go out and challenge him to a duel. No. Two things I want you to understand about resisting, or several things I want you to understand about the resisting, resisting the devil, but two very important things I want you to understand right now. First, the devil is not omnipresent. There is only one who is omnipresent, and it is not Satan. I frankly really doubt that Satan is in Boone, North Carolina. He's got bigger fish to fry. I suspect he's probably hanging out somewhere in the Middle East, probably with that guy, that dude, that president from Iran. Second thing I want you to understand about spiritual warfare. Now, that's, that's not to say that his, that his demons are not here. I do believe that and that he superintends what they do. I do believe that. We're going to talk about that. But the devil is likely not here. The second thing I want you to understand is I don't want him here. I don't want any loudmouth leading here this morning challenging him to a duel. He might just show up. Rather, let's just resist him. How do we do that? James actually goes on to tell us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Next verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we resist the devil not by focusing on the devil, but by focusing on God. We resist the devil by drawing near to God. And how is it that drawing near to God causes the devil to flee? (laughs) You ever read the New Testament? Because when Jesus came face to face with the forces of evil in the New Testament, what did they do? They bowed, they begged, let us go into a herd of pigs, and then they jumped into the lake. They they fled. We must recognize our strength is in the Lord in the power of His might. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. I want you to understand, I want you to understand, this is not a fair fight. It is not as if God and Satan are two equals slugging it out. Write this down. Satan is God's devil. And he does his bidding. Therefore, we fight him by being filled with the fullness of God, which is what Paul prayed for us earlier. Verse 11, we fight him by putting on the full armor of God. We'll get to that in a minute. Point three, by standing against the schemes of the devil. What are the devil's schemes which are unleashed against us? Hmm. All kinds of speculations and questions about that. I'm not going to answer all of the speculations and questions about that. Like, can the devil possess believers? I think I will answer that one. The answer is no. There is not a single teaching or example or story in the Bible where a believer is possessed by a demon. Can the devil oppress believers? Of course. Can he tempt us? Yes. Can he introduce thoughts into our minds? I don't know. Let let me spell out, not exhaustively, but a few things that I believe the Scripture says are the devil's schemes, and I'll leave the rest to the speculators. The devil is an intelligent being who carefully strategizes attacks against the church, against God's plan of redemption. They hate it, and against individuals against individual believers seeking to render us ineffective, and against unbelievers seeking to continue to hold them captive. A careful reading of these verses teaches that the forces of evil are powerful, they are wicked, they are cunning, and they are bent on our destruction. Paul does not identify the schemes here. It it, it seems from his other writings that they would include false teaching, they would include temptation to sin. It would include difficult physical trials. Think about that. One of his schemes is false teaching. Satan is the impetus behind every false teaching and false religion in the world. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, I'm not going to read it. You can, you, can go, you can go read it. He, he, he says that when we sacrifice the idols, we sacrifice the false religion. we are sacrificing to demons. This is why I am so passionate, well, because the Bible is, about the exclusive truth of Christianity. And we have people running around saying, well, in the church, well, maybe there are other ways that you can get there. That's the scheme of the devil. Because the Bible teaches that every other religion, every other false teaching is demonically inspired and holding people captive. Schemes. He tempts us to sin, as he did Eve. He can cause sickness, as he did Job. Paul tells us further that he may appear as an angel of light, meaning he deceives. We read that he is an accuser of believers. I think it he accuses us, keep, keeping our sin before us, and guilt and shame when that has already been dealt with. A lot more that we could say. The point is, Satan wants to destroy us. We must be aware. Don't dismiss him. We must be aware we are at war, and we must rely on Christ's strength. So, point two, as we face his attacks, we must remember that ultimately our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and spiritual forces. Those people, human flesh, people who stand against us, oppose us, even attack us, are being held captive by the forces of evil. And while their attacks may feel real, in fact, are real, we must remember they are not the ultimate enemy. Speaking of those held captive by Satan, Paul says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're blinded, held captive. He he tells Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must... Next, next, slide. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Unbelievers are are being held captive by those that we oppose. Our desire is to see them rescued from the enemy, much like God rescued us through the gospel of His Son. We must always remember that the enemy that we fight is ultimately spiritual, spiritual forces of evil. There's a spiritual war going on because we have declared our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And because we have done that, we must fight. I'm going to tell you, when... Before you came to faith in Christ, you were you were held captive by Satan when you by Satan, when you came to faith in Christ, you painted a big target on your chest. Paul tells us our battle is against rulers and powers. Both of those words refer to great power. The world forces of darkness. Those are very specific words that Paul chooses, which speak of Satan controlling the kingdoms of this world, which is why when Satan tempted Jesus, he said, If you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. He wasn't lying. Our battle is against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That, that, that spiritual battle is going on all about us. And many feel like those. Words are all designations of ranks and orders of demonic forces. It might be, I don't know, Uh, you figure it out. He does say that our struggle, interesting word, is against these forces. The word struggle is not a military term. It's an athletic term which speaks of wrestling. We wrestle against the forces of evil. Again, odd word choice, but it was not uncommon for Paul to mix metaphors. But he's likely here pointing out the fact that our struggle, our wrestling against the forces of evil is close and personal and hand-to-hand combat. Forces of evil. Now, we've seen some of those terms before. Paul used them back in chapter 1 when he spoke of Christ being raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Again, most fellows are designations, perhaps rank and order of, of spiritual beings, demons, the like. But here's the thing I want you to notice Christ has been seated far above them, they, ha- they have been placed in subjection. Under his feet. The war has already been won. It's been decided, but we're still fighting. The enemy, while mortally wounded at the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ, is still active. It's time to wake up. And one of the ways we fight the battle is to rescue captives. John Stott says of this ongoing battle. Is God's plan to create a new society? We saw that in chapter 2. Then they, the enemy, will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? He said that in chapter 3. Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend His reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and and, and purity? Yeah, that's chapters 4, 5, and 6. Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. Moreover, there will be no cessation of hostilities, not even a temporary truce or ceasefire until the end of life or of history when the peace of heaven is attained. And I would add, when the Prince of Peace comes back and, and, and casts him where he belongs. We fight a spiritual battle. How? Point three. Our battle is fought with spiritual weapons, verses 13 to 17. In verse 11, he said, put on the full armor of God. He repeats it in verse 13. Take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. That is, when Satan attacks you. What evil day is that? Probably all of them. But, but, but certainly leading to the great and final evil day when the Lord reigns victorious and casts him into the lake of fire. Until then, take up the armor of God. So that you will be able to resist him, and having done everything you can do, rest in the strength of the Lord. Stand firm. Paul then launches into a description of the armor of God. We will look briefly at each of these. Could preach a whole message on each one of them and venture in all kinds of speculation. I won't. But a couple of things I want you to notice before we jump into them. First, the description of the armor here indicates there is both a defensive and offensive nature to the battle. I know some of you have heard, no, it's all offensive. There's nothing on the back. We're never supposed to retreat. Now that actually comes from Pilgrim's Progress, not here because the breastplate actually went all the way around, but but, that's fine. Second, while a couple of Words that Paul uses here indicates that he's thinking of the armor of the Roman soldier to which he was likely chained when he was writing. The primary pattern or focus of this armor is the armor of the divine warrior, the Messiah himself. He's got some passages in Isaiah in mind, namely Isaiah 59, or excuse me, Isaiah 11, 59, and 52. Look, look at Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. We know he's talking about Jesus. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees, by by what he hears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Man, that's in Revelation. Revelation. And, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You get this idea of, uh, 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 of spiritual armor. It becomes more clear in Isaiah 59. Then this servant, Jesus, his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And then he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. There's a lot of the same wording here. The armor of the Messiah with which he, with, with, which, with, with which he does war is also the armor worn by his followers. It's time to get up, get dressed, and go to war with the following armor first. Stand firm, having girded your loins or your thighs with, with, with a belt of truth. The idea is this leather apron worn about the midsection is protection. It was a defensive piece of armor to ward off the blows of the enemy. What better thing to... F- To ward off, to defend yourself from the blows of the enemy than truth itself. See, these are metaphors. Don't don't get focused on the belt. Think about the truth. You will ward the attacks of the enemy as you gird yourself with the truth of the gospel, the truth that protects us, and the truth by which we then live. Second, put on the breastplate of Of righteousness. Again, it was a defensive piece of armor designed to protect front and back, the chest. Put put on righteousness to protect you. Big question that everybody wrote for pages about is what righteousness are we talking about? Are we talking about the righteousness, put on the righteousness of Christ that justifies or the righteousness that sanctifies? Which one is it? I say both. Put on, what, what greater. Protection from the lies and attacks of the enemy can we have than the righteousness of Christ, which brings us in a right relationship with God, and the, and the righteousness which allows us to live rightly. Gird yourself with the truth of the gospel. Put on His righteousness. Think of it this way: we put on the truth to fight the enemy's lies. We put on His righteousness to fight His temptations. Third, we shot our feet. With the preparation of the gospel of peace. Again, lots of discussion pages about this. Does this footwear, and they, they, they suppose that it describes the, the boots like sandals boots that the Roman soldiers wear that gave them s- strong footing in battle? Is is that what he's talking about? Well, perhaps, but in addition to providing stable footing as warriors, we do battle with the gospel. This is an, a battle, an offensive battle. Notice we take the gospel of peace. You, you, your, your translation may have it, the readiness of the gospel. The gospel of peace to war. That's kind of interesting, oxymoron. We take the gospel of peace to the battle to release those still held captive. No doubt this is where he had Isaiah 52 in mind, which he already quoted in Romans Ten, when he's talking about the spread of the gospel, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who announce peace and bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and say to Zion, our God reigns. The gospel of peace is 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 an offensive weapon by which we free captives. It's the gospel of salvation. Fourth, in addition, we take up the shield of faith. with with which we will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Again, this takes us back to a defensive piece of equipment. Paul uses a very specific word. Not small, round um, shield, but the the great big square one. This is why they feel like they has got Roman soldier somewhat in mind. Big, big square shield, four feet high, two feet wide, made of wood, wrapped with leather. They would soak it before battle so that if they fired those fiery arrows, those flaming arrows, they would be extinguished. And and the the soldier would kneel behind the safety of the shield. Do you see? Flaming arrows probably are just like those schemes in, in verse 11. We're able to withstand those attacks behind the safety of faith. Next, we put on the helmet of salvation. Helmet is designed to protect the head, protect the mind. We protect it with the truth of salvation. We don't believe the lies of the enemy who would seek to discourage us, to trap us in guilt and shame. Some of you have been living in guilt and shame long enough. It's time to put on the helmet of salvation and put that aside. It is the hope of our present salvation the assurance of sins forgiven, and our future salvation, the the, the, the rock-solid hope of future resurrection. And last, we take up the sword of the Spirit. He tells us what that is. It's the Word of God. Now, 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 a sword was used both ways. It was used defensively to parry the thrusts of the enemy. Jesus used it to parry the attacks of, of Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. Three times, Jesus himself quoted the Word of God against the attacks of the enemy. But a sword is also used offensively. In this case, we take the truth of the Word of God as it is centered on the gospel to fight against the enemy, setting captives free, advancing the kingdom of God. We remember the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is a battle, and they can't do a thing about it as long as we take up the armor of God. Do not leave yourself exposed. But but, but would you please notice, I want to suggest this morning that the emphasis here is not per se on the war. The emphasis is not per se on the armor. The emphasis is on the facts of the faith. Look at it. Stand firm in truth, in righteousness, the gospel, faith salvation, and the Word of God. These, you see, are the necessary elements to live a victorious Christian life in the midst of battle. You want to write a 1,400-page book on the armor of God? and focus on the things in red. That's what we need. We do not focus on our formidable foe. We focus on our faithful Savior. You see, Martin Luther ends that famous Him this way with which I end. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit, the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods, let kindreds, all those things that we focus on in this first world, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, here we stand, not in our own strength, but in the power and truth of the gospel of your Son. Forgive us for being lethargic, apathetic, lazy. Forgive us for forgetting that we are still in war. There are battles to be fought and won. There are captives to be rescued. Help us to be about the business that you have left us here to do, using the resources that you have given us uh, with which to fight. Help us to keep our eyes focused, not on our foe, but on our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.